This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 236, Vampires. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Vampires are evil beings that find their sustenance by sucking the life force out of their unsuspecting victims. They are not fictitious. They are all too real. This week we will discuss the blood-sucking parasites that afflict us daily, the three sorts of victims vampires seek out, and how you can avoid being two of them, vampiric preachers and the havoc they wreak on local churches, and a game I've never played that promotes an ethic I always promote. We start with what I've been preaching. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Those are the first two lines of Proverbs 30, 15. It's ironic, and not a little bit sad, that the greatest doctors in the world put so much confidence in the healing power of leeches for so long, when the Bible has always told us it was the other way around. Life is in the blood, going all the way back to Genesis 9-4. A creature that lives by stealing your blood would seem to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution, medically speaking. Thankfully, we have finally caught up with Proverbs on that front. Leeches are disgusting creatures. We are instinctively repelled by them. And they serve very well as metaphors for some people we run across in our lives that drain us of our strength just as effectively as any literal bloodsucker you may encounter. The line about the leech and its daughters is only the first half of Proverbs 30.15. Immediately afterward, Agur the son of Jaca gives his list of three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. He says the grave never stops accepting bodies. A barren woman never stops wanting children. The ground never stops needing rain. And fires never stop burning. The leech fits this category perfectly. And by now you've realized, I'm sure, we're not really talking about literal leeches that might feed on your literal blood. The real problem, Ager says, is humans that act like leeches. If you give to them, they only come back to ask you to give more. The context works in the other direction as well. Backing up all the way to verse 11, Agur describes a broad swath of humanity that is wholly consumed with its own things, completely indifferent to the needs of others. And he finishes the description of verse 14, right before he mentions the leech. There is a kind of person whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. That's the leech. He sets his teeth in whatever victim he may find and forces them to give and give until either the victim removes the leech or the victim dies. Granted, no literal leech can remove that much blood from a human, but spiritual leeches can, and spiritual leeches do. It's a fine line sometimes between ministering to a needy soul and enabling a greedy parasite. Genuine biblical love seeks the well-being of the one who is loved, but that does not always involve giving that person what he or she wants. At some point, the person becomes a parasite, attaching themselves to a Christian or a church, extracting whatever they can from them, with no thought of giving anything in return other than further and greater requests slash demands. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 reads, If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. But it can be tough to distinguish between being unwilling to work and being unable. Supporting a leech only emboldens bad behavior directs resources of time, energy, and money in unproductive directions, and builds cynicism in the body of Christ that can interfere with the support of truly worthy causes. Then again, is a person a leech simply because they have pressing and frequent needs? 
I'm bringing up a lot of questions today for which I do not have adequate answers. All the practical guidance I can offer is this. Commit to following Jesus and imitating His character in every aspect of your life. And then act accordingly. Jesus turned away from hungry people sometimes. He refused to perform signs for people who showed an ungodly attitude. He certainly did not always say no, but he certainly did not always say yes either. Be willing to lend to those who cannot repay, but make sure you're being wise as serpents in doing so. If that sounds like an impossible task, that's because it is. And it's not the only one Jesus requires of you. Pray for wisdom and guidance. Build love for your fellow humans. And do not surrender to selfishness, bigotry, or judgmentalism. You won't be perfect in this area, but then you won't be perfect in any other area either. Just do the best you can. And when your patience starts to wear thin with your less-than-perfect neighbors, take a breath and remember how patient your Savior has been with you over the years. This is what I've been reading. I've already included Dracula by Bram Stoker on my list of top 10 books I've read in the first part of 2023. Spoiler alert, it's going to be on my list of top 10 books for the entire year as well. I don't think any book I've read in recent memory has impacted me quite as much. I've said numerous times over the last few months, and I will continue to say, it's probably the best book other than the Bible I've ever read on the topic of evil. For those who only know generalizations and cartoony versions of Dracula, let me summarize. Count Dracula is a human, former human, entity posing as a human, it's difficult to say specifically, who has used forces of evil to allow him to extend his life pretty much indefinitely by drinking the blood of others. Those whom he afflicts eventually die and are transformed into creatures like himself, also craving human blood. He lives in a castle in Transylvania, a region in modern-day Romania in Central Europe. He has otherworldly powers, such as remarkable strength and speed, and the ability to transform himself into creatures of the night. And he wishes to leave his ancestral home and take up new residence in England. Although traveling over water is hateful to him, and he must retain coffins full of soil from his homeland to sleep in, he manages to complete the trip and begins a reign of terror that ultimately, spoiler alert, ends in his destruction. My biggest takeaway from the book was the different categories of victims Dracula finds. First, there's Jonathan Harker, who stumbles into Dracula's abode unaware of the danger it poses. Because he's pure in heart and alert to his surroundings, he quickly suspects Dracula's intentions. He takes specific measures to protect himself. And in the end, through great effort and sacrifice, he manages to save himself. Second, there's Lucy Wastenra, a lovely but basically vapid young woman, caught up in the shallowness of life, delighted to find herself the recipient of three marriage proposals in a single day. She's unaware of the evils of life in general, and is completely unprepared to encounter Dracula. He lures her in, infects her, and ultimately kills her. Only the interaction of her loved ones saves her from becoming the undead herself. We'll save conversation about superstition and holy relics for another time. Finally, there is Renfield, a sick and twisted individual who is naturally drawn to Dracula. He willingly and eagerly embraces Dracula as his lord and sinks deeper and deeper into mania and insanity. Any reasonable observer is horrified at his behavior, but Renfield is absolutely delighted to be the agent of evil and accepts all the consequences that come with it. That's the story of spiritual warfare in a nutshell. 
One soul is alert to evil and still must work mightily to survive. One is oblivious and perishes through ignorance and neglect. One is evil by inclination and welcomes whatever fate the adversary offers. The devil is after all three. He works under some limitations. Read the first two chapters of Job for some insight into that. But within those limitations, he possesses remarkable power. He is the roaring lion of 1 Peter 5.8. There's even reference in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 and 11, to all power and false signs and wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. I wish I knew more about that passage, but two things are particularly apparent. One, Satan is determined to draw souls into his orbit. And two, you can avoid it by embracing the truth that's found in Jesus. Truly, as 1 John 4, 4 reads, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I assume you're in the first group since you're listening to this podcast. Satan is after you, but you can escape with difficulty, to borrow from 1 Peter 4, 18, by relying on the power of Jesus to conquer death and sin. You have neighbors, though, who are ignorant, maybe through naivete, maybe through weakness. You can have an influence on them and perhaps snatch them from the clutches of death. At least you can try. And tragically, there are wicked ones out there who will embrace everything sin has to offer and eventually receive the wages for their efforts. I'm not suggesting you should cease trying to be a positive influence for them. But the wiser approach may be the Potiphar's wife plan. Run away from the dangerous individual as quickly as you can. Satan will suck the life out of you if you give him half a chance. So don't give him half a chance. This is what I've been hearing. I know a preacher, the name and location are unimportant, who got crossways with the local eldership and was taken out of the pulpit with literally 24 hours notice. He found out Saturday morning he was not going to preach on the next Sunday morning. He was free to continue worshiping there, they said, but under no circumstances would he be allowed to teach. He and his family discussed the situation and quickly decided it was in the best interest of everyone that they cut ties with the congregation immediately. They answered the phone when brethren would call, of course, but they did not initiate contact. The fear was that enough members would take the preacher's side to effectively split the church. The elder siders would stay put and figure out how to make an enormous payment on their new auditorium, and the preacher siders would start a new work down the road. Notice that I called that the fear. Some preachers in that position would call it the hope. Splitting the church would mean surrounding yourself with people who consider you the hero. Splitting the church means not having to sell your house or put your children in new schools. Splitting the church means keeping your friends, the ones that really were your friends anyway, instead of perhaps never seeing them again. Those are some obvious advantages and not to be easily dismissed. And I wouldn't entirely rule out the possibility that staying and fighting might be the appropriate move in some situations. God will be the judge. I will say this, though. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 3.17 If you're going to take a hammer and chisel to the house of God, you better have an extremely good reason. And your ego, your hurt feelings, your bank account... Your convenience, those are not extremely good reasons. Bottom line, some preachers have developed the attitude that the church owes them a living. And not just a living, 
a living that is up to their own personal standard. People with office jobs and such have reason to expect raises and promotions on a regular basis in response to good work, and sometimes just in response to the absence of terrible work. And if they don't get it, they feel free to quit in a huff and create as big a scene as possible on the way out. I'm not sure that's the best way to handle bad news out in the general workplace, but I know it's the best way to turn the family of God inside out. I preach constantly about the need for Christians to put others before themselves and put Jesus and his cause first of all. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's no exception clause for when they've done you wrong. Why not suffer the wrong, Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6.7. Why not rather be defrauded? What does it say to our friends in the world when we can't get along with one another? If we can't keep our family united, why should they want to be part of it? And I know it's a lot more complicated than that from time to time, but not always. Not even usually, according to what I've seen. Most of the time, the internal warfare among the people of God is a result of good old-fashioned selfishness. And we preachers who have preached submission and suffering for the cause from every angle imaginable can be just as guilty as anyone else. We are blessed to reap innumerable blessings from our affiliation with local brethren. But that's the end result of our common walk of faith, not a goal to be sought after in its own right. And that's an important distinction. If you're part of the church for the social aspect or the ego boost, or in the case of paid preachers, for the financial security, you're little better than a vampire. Dracula sought the prosperity of those around him too, not because he cared about others, but because he could personally benefit as a result. And if the work of the local church is doing little more than paying the bills for one particular man, that church and that man need a refresher course on what the church is really all about. This is what I've been playing. Fury of Dracula is a highly thematic adventure game in which one player takes the role of Dracula and the other players chase him around Europe trying to capture and destroy him. The hunters make a plan for whether they should split up or stay together whether rest or speedy travel is a high priority at the moment, where a clue might be found and how hard they should look for it. In the meantime, Dracula is moving in the darkness, trying to stay a step or two ahead of the hunters. Perhaps traveling by water is the right move. It's done at great cost, but the hunters won't be expecting it. Perhaps bringing the attack to the hunters would be the move, rather than running and hiding. It's likely the closest thing to a vampire hunt that doesn't smell like garlic. There are a couple of reasons why the Hammondses have never played Fury of Dracula. One, none of us is especially keen on playing the role of a blood-sucking vampire. Two, the game can take three or four hours to play. That's pretty close to a deal-breaker for at least two of us. So I can't speak to the quality of the game with any first-hand knowledge. I know it's gone through three or four editions over the years, so clearly lots of people are playing it. I will, on the other hand, speak to the theme for a moment. Evil is real. It's vital that you arm yourself against it. And if you manage to choose light over darkness, God bless you for that. And do not grow weary in well-doing. But that is not the end of the story. Jesus wants you to go out into the world and start banishing darkness in the hearts of others. Your job as a Christian is not just to reject evil. You're responsible for pushing the forces of darkness backward. If vampires can reproduce by remaking people in their likeness, then you can get your neighbors to imitate you as you imitate Jesus. The most obvious way to do that is in the rearing of children. The prophet writes in Isaiah 8.16, 
Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders to Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah was special in that his family, and especially his son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, were living messages from God, signs of his judgment and deliverance. But if God gave you children, they can be a powerful way to broadcast your faith. Even in the absence of children, your hope in the future, whatever that future may be, shows your neighbors why you have chosen to reject the deeds of the flesh in preference to the fruit of the Spirit. The writer of Hebrews references Isaiah 8.16 and applies it to Jesus, saying the children or followers God has given him, and that's you and me, are living testimony to the power of faith. You are a child of God. You are bought by the blood. The idea of you giving your life force to the devil is hateful to you, and you will tell anyone who will listen why that's the case. But that should not be enough. Keeping Dracula from afflicting you or your loved ones is a terrific start. But now you need to join the hunting party. Others are not as prepared as you. Others are oblivious to the danger. It's time for you to take the battle to the enemy, wherever he may be hiding. That's not a mandate either from me or from Jesus that you sell all your possessions and follow after Jesus as he required of the rich young ruler. Or that you abandon your equivalent of your fishing boat and travel the world telling souls about Jesus. If that's your calling, wonderful. But I promise you, you do not have to cross an ocean to find evil. The lion is in your own neighborhood, in your workplace, in your schools, maybe even in your houses of worship. He's seeking to devour someone. If that's not going to be you, great. But don't let it be your neighbor either. Not if you have anything to say about it. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.